<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We've been talking about how legalized bribery has affected pretty much everything in American politics. How Richard Nixon had only four Republicans dissent from saying, yes, let's investigate him. And then, yeah, that was in 1974, then two years later, the Supreme Court in the Buckley decision says, oh, it's just fine for billionaires to own politicians. Two years after that, the first national bank decision, they say it's just fine for corporations to own politicians. That led to this avalanche of money that led to the Reagan revolution, and here we are. And ever since then, it has seemed partisan, but really what it is is about money. But speaking about money, Professor Richard Wolff is with us, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently, he's the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Marxism. Democracyatwork.info is his website, plus rdwolf with two fs.com. And you can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. So I sent a note to you, or I think Sean did, last week about this article that I had read about a, this guy is saying it's a massive scandal at the rating agencies that, based on a Wall Street Journal investigation, finding that there is all this corporate debt that is rated investment grade, but that if there's even a small increase in interest rates, it'll suddenly become junk status. And it's such a large pile that basically it could crash the economy. Am I accurately characterizing that? And tell us what this is all about, what this means, and why the average person should care. You are absolutely right, number one. But the average person should care because the last time we allowed this sort of thing to happen, back in 2006, 7, and into 2008, it crashed global capitalism. It led to four or five million Americans losing their homes, uh, many more losing their jobs, uh, many who have had to go back to work at lower pay, fewer benefits, and all the rest. So the risk to all of us of not paying attention to what we're about to discuss is extreme. So let me explain. Capitalism being the unstable system that it is, after the crash in 2008, the desperate Federal Reserve and the government at that time, first under Bush and under Obama, took extraordinary steps to try to contain the enormous damage that had already been done from plunging us into a 1930s type of depression. And one of the things they did was to pump massive amounts of money into the economy and to drop interest rates to unprecedented levels, even including minus, that is less than zero, uh, which trillions of dollars are now being lent at around the world, and the United States is part of that. Well, when you drop interest rates to virtually nothing, what you're doing is giving an incentive to every corporation that has a problem. Either it can't sell what it makes, or competitors are squeezing it, or workers are demanding a decent salary, or whatever it is, bad decisions perhaps that the executives have made. There's now an easy out. Go borrow this unprecedentedly cheap money, because the interest rate is virtually nothing. As if to prove the point, 
the explosion of corporate debt over the last 10 years has no parallel in American history. Corporations have been borrowing literally like it's going out of style. And what the article in the Wall Street Journal did was basically say, what is happening to the so-called safety of all these corporate debts? Because when a corporation borrows, it issues something called a corporate bond. Uh, the person who lends money to the corporation gets a piece of paper, this corporate bond, which is the guarantee that the corporation uh, will pay back what has been lent to it, plus interest uh, every year, according to the, the deal that was negotiated. So corporations have been loading up because they solve every problem uh, imaginable, including many that should not have been handled that way, by using this cheap money, which they never were able uh, to access before. And what the Wall Street Journal does is say, well, has that been reflected in the credit rating that the company gets? In other words, people who are thinking of buying that company's stock, people who are thinking of lending to the company, people who have small businesses that sell something to that company and want to be sure to get paid, they're all interested in how safe it is to do any kind of business with a company loaded up on debt. And the Wall Street Journal article explains that the rating agencies, that's three companies in America dominate that, uh, Moody, Standard & Poor, and Fitch. What they have done is not lower the credit rating, despite the fact that their credit rating should have been lowered because these companies are carrying levels of debt, which mean that if we have a downturn or if the Federal Reserve dares to raise interest rates, we're going to see these companies collapse and with them our economy. So it is, in fact, very scary. So they basically built a time bomb under our economy. And in the process of doing so, a small number of senior executives and banks that, that issue these corporate bonds have made probably hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Absolutely. And here's another way of looking at the irony. Because capitalism crashed, that was the problem, they came up with the solution of very low interest rates, only to discover now, 10 years later, that the quote-unquote solution has made a problem potentially worse than the problem it was the solution for. This is an economy that's spinning out of control when it goes through these kinds of gyrations with the risk it carries for everybody else. So if the economy were to crash, let's let's say that it seems like there's a worldwide recession happening right now. China That's is right. going back to Hong Kong's officially in recession. Might just be the upset, but who knows? Europe, large chunks of Europe are in recession. If there's a worldwide recession and, you know, not associated with a big deflation and interest rates go up in the United States and basically the pin gets pulled out of this hand grenade to mix my metaphors here and the U.S. economy goes into a tailspin. When I look yeah. at 1932, what I see is the Great Depression taking a bite out of the United States and taking a bite out of Germany. Germany had a leader, or 1933, Germany had a leader, Adolf Hitler, who had one way of solving that problem. The United States had a leader, Franklin Roosevelt, who had another way of solving that problem. I would argue that Donald Trump's solutions are much closer to what Mussolini and Franco and Hitler were using to get out of the depression than what FDR used. And that this presents, this could easily, this crisis could easily present an existential threat to the United States. This could be Trump's Reichstag fire, particularly if he gets reelected and it happens in the first year of his new presidency. Do you think that I'm like way out on thin ice thinking like that? No, but let me offer a couple of qualifications. Mr. Hitler at least had the opportunity to say that this colossal mess that he walked into, and remember he takes power in, the, in January of 1933, that this mess is older than him and in no way his fault. Right. Same now, while that is also in the long run true here, Mr. Trump has taken many steps in his three and a half years or three years 
to be held accountable. The enormous tax cut to business in December, this, this crazy trade war with China, which is hurting the United States every bit as much as it's hurting China's economy. I mean, we really have a spectacle in which the world and Americans see that for Mr. Trump to play his card of making America great again by appearing to be Mr. Tough Guy has in fact held hostage the world economy to his re-election campaign. He's under a lot of pressure and blame if this economy tanks. That's why he's putting the kind of pressure on the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates, no matter how crazy that is under these circumstances. Capitalism has had an economic downturn every four to seven years. We're overdue for the one that happened last in 2009 because it's more than four or seven years. So bottom line has to be that Mr. Trump will be held responsible if he can, if the crash happens before the election. So I believe his right. strategy now is to do everything in his power to make the crash happen after the voting is over. Well, and in fact, this just uh, at the very top of the Washington Post, big red stripe, breaking news. White House officials and congressional Republicans have begun early talks on a new package of tax reductions and economic growth measures under pressure from President Trump, who is an, uh, agitating to announce a new tax cut proposal heading into the 2020 election. There you go. Absolutely. That's so. it. That's what he wants. And, you know, every economist I know who isn't on Mr. Trump's payroll understands that after a period of growing inequality, the last thing you want is to exacerbate the splits, the divisions, the hostilities in this country with more inequality-boosting tax cuts of the sort he did in, in 2017. And you don't want to juice an economy already overjuiced by these devices because the old truth will haunt us. The longer you postpone this, the worse the crash will be when it hits. It's just like not going to the doctor when the pain is a little and then being told when you've waited too long that the time for solutions has gone by. You're now going to have to take the bitter medicine. This is, the, this is playing with absolute fire what is going on now. And that's why that story in the Wall Street Journal alerting us to this crazy, cozy relationship in which the rating companies provide credit ratings to the companies who pay them for the ratings and therefore don't lower them despite the overuse of credit. I mean, it is basically lying to the vast American people, hoping nobody notices until the crash comes when we'll all be running for cover. Yeah. Remarkable. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com. Uh, you can tweet him at Prof Wolf. Professor Wolf, thank you for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Glad to speak with you. Really appreciate it. It's always, it, always so informative. You know, it's Friday. Are you facing a weekend of eating? You know, until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. My wife convinced me there was one that was worth sharing, and a year later, I had to say she was right. The key to losing weight is getting your appetite and those pesky food cravings under control. Once you do that, the rest is easy. The holidays are just around the corner. My producer, Sean, wanted to lose a few pounds ahead of the eating season. Sean is trying Riduzone, just one capsule with breakfast, and forget it. Second one at dinner for days when you feel a little ex you need a little extra help. Sean says when you don't feel hungry, it's easier to make better choices. It's only been a month, and Sean says she's really happy with how Riduzone is working for her. The only ingredient in Riduzone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant, and that really appealed to both Louise and Sean. Look, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Riduzone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to RidUZone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. RidUZone.com. Promo code TOM. RidUZone.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. There's a bunch of stuff in the news that I wanted to get to today. 
that is just absolutely fascinating and illuminating and concerning and all kinds of stuff. And I wanted to start with, I saw the beginnings of the two Santa Claus theory. Now, those of you who are longtime listeners probably know this well enough to recite it in your sleep. Those of you who may have just only been listening to the program for the last six months or a year or something, it's been a while since I've explicitly and overtly talked about this. And so I'm just going to lay it out. Back during the 1980 election, or just before the 1980 election, as Reagan was, you know, rolling to victory, as the as the Iranians were holding on to, uh, you know, the hostages, and Jimmy Carter was just taking a plunge as a consequence of that. Um, meanwhile, Reagan was already shipping military spare parts uh, via Israel to Iran. As that was going on, a guy by the name of Jude Wininsky who was a Republican operative and, and think tank guy, he's a very smart guy, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. And in this op-ed, he proposed what I refer to as the two Santa Claus theory. He called it that too, the two Santa Claus theory. And, and it goes something like this. The Democrats are beloved because ever since 1933, they have been the party of Santa Claus. They have been the ones who pass out the gifts. They gave us Social Security. They gave us the minimum wage. They gave us the 40-hour work week. They did away with child labor laws. They gave us the right to unionize. They gave us the, uh, the minimum wage. All of these things were opposed by Republicans, every single one of them. They gave us Social Security. I mentioned that Medicare, Medicaid. They gave us uh, subsidies for good schools, for education. They gave us low-cost student loans and things like that. They gave us the GI Bill, or at least they gave my parents' generation the GI Bill. I mean, they gave us all these things. And so voters think of the Democratic Party as Santa Claus. So Jude Wininsky said, you know, we've got two things we have to do as Republicans. We have to, number one, become the Republican Santa Claus Party. And number two, we have to force the Democrats to shoot Santa Claus, to shoot their Santa Claus, specifically Social Security, Medicare, and the, and the big entitlement programs. So how do you do both those things with one bold stroke? Now, Judah Wininsky's theory was very straightforward. What you do is when you have a Republican in the White House, and particularly if you have a Republican House and a Republican Senator, enough Republican control of the legislature that you can accomplish this, but particularly a Republican in the White House, what you do is you just start spending money like a drunken sailor. No offense to sailors. You just spend everything you can. You know, defense is a great place. You know, double your defense budget or massively increase it because those defense contractors reliably support Republicans. Find industries that you can pour money into that don't help average working people but will help the top 1%. And then the top 1% will recycle a portion of that money back into Republican campaigns and coffers. And by the way, in addition to spending as much as you can, cut taxes. And that will make you the tax cut Santa Claus. You're the spending Santa Claus now. You're going to stimulate the economy. Even if you're giving money to the defense industry, still, it's, they're going to be making jobs. So you're stimulating the economy. And you're cutting taxes at the same time. And, the, and so you're viewed as the tax cut Santa Claus, the Republican Party. And then what you do is you wait for a Democrat to get into the White House. Because stage two, stage one is to turn the Republican Party from their party of no, which they were from 1920 all the way up to 1981, turn them from the party of no into the Santa Claus Party, the tax cut Santa Claus Party, and the military spending Santa Claus Party. And then step number two is when you get a Democrat in the White House, start screaming about the debt. Oh my God, the national debt, we're going to be broke. You know, this is how it works in your household. If your household isn't, you know, and, and just go through all this stuff, right? And, and create all this fear and hysteria and demand that the Democrats do something about the damn debt. And the Democrats will then do two things. They will slightly raise taxes, which will make you look even more like the tax cut Santa Claus and them look even more like Scrooge, number one. And number two... If you scream loud enough and you can create enough public pressure, you can get the Democrats to cut spending. And if they cut spending, where are they going to cut? Well, they're probably not going to cut the Pentagon. They're going to, you know, because they, A, they couldn't get it through, and B, the defense contractors are really slick. They put, you know, defense and, uh, manufacturing facilities literally in every congressional district in the country. So instead of cutting defense spending, what do you cut? Social Security, Medicare, 
funding for the IRS, food stamps, uh, you know, anything that basically helps working people. You cut all those things. And because you have a Democratic president, that Democratic president will be perceived as the guy who cut things. He will be the Democrat who shot the Democratic Santa Claus. And this has worked brilliantly. When Reagan came into office, the national debt was around $800 billion, less than a trillion, eight-tenths of $1 trillion. When he left office, my recollection is it was $2.7 trillion. It was in that neighborhood anyway. I'm doing this from memory. And Reagan essentially tripled the national debt in eight years. Tripled it. And then after Bush came Clinton. And Clinton comes into office, you know, after Bush. And all of a sudden, the Republicans all start screaming about the national debt. Oh my God, the national debt. Pete Peterson, the Wall Street billionaire, is, is running the Peterson Institute, and they're cranking out all this stuff about how the national debt is going to lead to 30% inflation and, and a crash worse than the Great Depression and all this kind of stuff, which is all complete BS, which is why none of it happened. But they brought all this pressure to bear on, on Clinton to the point that Clinton did cut many of these programs. You'll recall he, in his State of the Union address, in, you know, when he got reelected, he said the, the era of big government is over and welfare as we know it has ended. So, you know, Clinton shot Santa Claus and he's not remembered fondly for that. He's, he's, you know, he's remembered as Scrooge, which brought us George W. Bush who doubled the national debt. He took it from, from uh, as I recall, somewhere around $9 trillion up to around 15 or 16 or 17 trillion, wherever it was when he left. I'm really vague on those numbers, so don't quote me on those numbers. But, you know, he, Bush Jr., substantially increased the national debt and also made sure that the national debt would increase going forward by starting two wars that he didn't end. You know, I mean, in Iraq, so far, it looks like a $7 trillion war. Afghanistan looks like a $5 trillion war. I mean, this is, we're talking real money here when we're talking about a $20 trillion national debt. And so Bush leaves office, Obama comes into office, and what do the Republicans do? Oh, my God, it's the national debt. Oh, my God, we got to do something. You know, the only two presidents to actually have a balanced budget and to actually balance the budget to take the deficit, which is the annual contribution to the debt, to take the deficit to zero, and actually show a surplus were Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton because they reacted to this Republican pressure. <laughs> surprise, surprise. On Morning Joe, they had the editor of the Washington Examiner, which is a right-wing newspaper that's given away for free in Washington, D.C. It's owned by some right-wing crank billionaire or foundation or whatever it is. And they had him on, and he's written a new book about how the national debt is going to destroy America and socialism is not the answer if Democrats don't start cutting spending. Not a word about raising taxes. And they did this for like 15 minutes. This is, in my opinion, the opening salvo of the two Santa Claus theory. This tells me that Joe Scarborough and his buddies, you know, he's a Republican, and his buddies have figured out that there's basically no way Trump is going to get reelected and Pence is not a strong enough candidate to get himself elected if Trump gets impeached. Which means that Whoever the Democrats nominate is going to be the next president, which means that from a Republican point of view, we've got to start right now priming the pump, getting the American people in the mindset of, oh, my God, the national debt. It may look kind of reflect poorly on Trump because he just, you know, he added two trillion dollars to the national debt with his with his tax cut. And it's actually going to be much larger than that over time his uh, military spending. I mean, you, know, you just, there's a whole long list of things that he's jacked the national debt up on. But, you know, Republicans never take blame for that. So I'm just telling you, this is coming. The two Santa Claus theory is about to play out big time. So keep an eye out. And, you know, when it starts happening, hit every bit of social media you can find and every, you know, every email and every friend and everybody else and just explain to them about the two Santa Claus theory. When Jude Wininsky laid this out, Reagan and his buddies, I mean, they actively embraced it, openly embraced it, even wrote op-eds about embracing it. The two Santa Claus theory is playing out and I've been waiting.
I talk about this on the air from time to time, and I, I've been waiting for the Republicans to start rolling it out. And I, and I did bring this up a few months ago, maybe four or five months ago, and I said, you know, I haven't heard peep out of the out of the Republicans about the deficit. Of course, you know, they all voted for the tax bill that blew a hole in the debt. But you know, I said I haven't heard a peep out of them. But I'm sure we will when they come to the conclusion that a Democrat is going to be the next president, that Trump can't get reelected. And sure enough, it happened and it got rolled out on Morning Joe. So, I, you know, we were talking about that. The other pieces, though, to this whole thing about how all this is playing out that I wanted to get into. There are fires in Simi Valley, fires in Southern California. One broke out right down near the Reagan Library. Now, the Reagan Library is apparently a fairly fireproof building. And I think this is just mind-bogglingly ironic. What has triggered most of these fires is two things. One is that global climate change, which we learned about when Reagan was president, right? It was the 1980s when people actually testified before Congress and said, this is coming and it's caused by fossil fuels. It was the 1980s when ExxonMobil actually admitted it. Yeah, we know about this. And then later decided to cover it up. But for a while, they were actually talking about it. That, that was all in the 1980s. So, you know, Reagan did nothing about climate change, didn't investigate it, didn't look into it. Nobody is an administration. I mean, who cares? Hey, it's the fossil fuel companies. We're going to let them keep making billions, number one. And number two, Reagan championed this idea that government can't do anything right. In fact, in his first inaugural address, he said, government is not the solution to your problems. Government is the problem. And so if government can't do anything right, then what do you do about things like you know, a statewide power system, turn it over to private industry, privatize it. And sure enough, that's what happened. You know, first it was Enron, and then Enron failed, and it broke into a million little pieces, and PGE rises in California, or gets reincarnated in California, only this time it's as a private for-profit corporation. And PG&E, an actual, I mean, this actually got litigated, um, Judge William Alsup ruled, and I quote, this is a quote from a ruling, a judge's ruling. PG&E pumped out $4.5 billion in dividends and let the tree trimming budget wither. And it wasn't just the tree trimming budget. It was the upgrading the power lines. I mean, the power line systems in California, some of them are 30, 40, 50 years old. So, you know, when the winds blow really hard, they, they snap. You know, the sparks cause wildfires, and those fires then kill people. So Reagan's privatization and Reagan's ignoring climate change have led to fires that are now encroaching on the Reagan library. Tell me that's not ironic. But it's also symbolic of something much larger, which is basically the purchase, the acquisition of our Republican political class by criminal oligarchs literally all over the world. You know, it's, it started in a big way with American oligarchs, you know, the Kochs and the Bradley Foundation and all these, you know, all these other billionaires, Joe Coors and all these billionaires who kind of crawled out of the woodwork in the 70s and 80s. And now it's, it's going international. Boy, it's, stuff is just spilling out all over the place. These stories that are coming out right now. We're seeing now Republicans not just being purchased by American oligarchs, which is how, you know, it used to be. But we're seeing Republicans also being purchased by foreign oligarchs. And, you know, this should be pretty troubling. I mean, this from uh, Alternet, a piece by Sophia Tesfaye. The headline is GOP Senators Ron Johnson and Marsha Blackburn are tied to Russian money and Trump conspiracy theories. They're not alone. And she notes political action committees for Republican Senators Mitch McConnell, Marco Rubio, and Lindsey Graham reportedly accepted $7.35 million in contributions from a Ukrainian-born oligarch with close ties to Russia during the 2016 election. And then she goes on to point out that Republican Senator John Thune, Republican Senator John Kennedy blocked a Democratic bill to provide funding for states to shore up election security. Now, why would Republicans want individual states not to have secure elections? Ask yourself that. Why? The next day, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee, quietly blocked three election security bills for the second time this year. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell, Marco Rubio, and Lindsey Graham got $7.3 million in contributions just from this one oligarch. 
This one Ukrainian oligarch that we know about, we don't know about the other ones. We don't know who's, I mean, Ron Johnson, uh, the, Repo the Republican from Wisconsin, Senator from Wisconsin, actually met with a Ukrainian diplomat for a half hour back in July and came out, you know, saying that uh, the DNC was the one who hacked the DNC in 2016. Don't you know? I mean, it's pretty breathtaking. So we've got that. This is leading, in, in my opinion, frankly, to something like the death of democracy. And then parallel to the death of democracy, what replaces democracy if democracy fails? Oligarchy and strongman oligarchy, like you're seeing right now in Brazil with Bolsonaro, or in, in the Philippines with Duterte, or in Poland with, with Duda, or in Hungary with Orban. What happens is these oligarchs, or right-wing strongmen supported by oligarchs, rise up to power and then hyper-empower their police and basically turn their nations into a police state where they are monitoring their citizens, particularly their vulnerable citizens, particularly people of color, gender minorities, you know, LGBTQ folks, women, target them, suppress them, and go with your base, you know, that you're supporting, as it were. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, it's Friday. If you've got a long weekend planned, you might want to include some CBD oil in there. It seems to be a, a you know, a good healthy thing. We've been using New Leaf Natural CBD oil. It's non-intoxicating, which is great if you don't want to get high. Uh, you know, it, it's just, you know, it's made from hemp rather than marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties, and it is a cannabinoid. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's really only one place, newleafnaturals.com. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And now it gets even weirder. I mean, this story is just truly, truly breathtaking. Over on uh, Daily Kos, Meteor Blades writing for the Daily Kos staff, the Republican governor of Missouri is a guy by the name of Mike Parsons. Now, you'll recall when Mike Pence was the Republican governor of Indiana, he proposed a law, which I believe got struck down by the courts, that if a woman had a miscarriage, she had to present herself to the police department so that they could determine if that miscarriage was a natural miscarriage or whether it was the result of an abortion, an attempted abortion. And this led to this hysterical thing that we talked about on this program for the better part of a year that it was going on back when Pence was governor of Indiana. This was like five, six, seven years ago, whenever it was. Um, it was called Periods for Pence. And women all over Indiana were, were tweeting and texting and writing and calling Governor Pence's office to say, well, I just had my period, so I'm not pregnant. Everything's good. Don't worry. They were self-reporting their menstrual periods to Governor Pence. Mike Pence, when he was the governor of Indiana, because he had proposed that if women had miscarriages, they should present themselves to the police. Now it turns out Republican Governor Mike Parsons of Missouri put a guy in charge of the state health department by the name of Dr. Randall Williams, and we learned as a result of an article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that the state health director in Missouri has put together a spreadsheet. I'll just, I'm quoting from the article. 
He had created a spreadsheet tracking the menstrual periods of Planned Parenthood clients. Now tell me this isn't like full-blown Handmaid's Tale. The state health director creates a spreadsheet of when women who are clients of Planned Parenthood are having their menstrual periods so he can determine if any of them be become pregnant and if they then later show up at Planned Parenthood to have an abortion. Because in Missouri, they're down to one abortion clinic in the entire state. And so it's really easy to track who goes in and who comes out. He's using the powers of the state to do this. I mean, this is happening in real time. This is happening right now. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, a couple of days ago, was talking to a group of police chiefs in Chicago. It was Monday? Yeah. On Monday, there was this huge anti-Trump protest, and I was like, gee, I wonder, you know, if that's going on nationally. I mean, why is this happening in Chicago? What I, you know, I failed to put two and two together when I got the notice while I was on the air, that the reason why everybody was protesting Trump is because Trump was there in Chicago speaking to this convention of police chiefs. And the police chief of Chicago refused to go. God bless that person. But what Trump said to the police chiefs should really chill you. I mean, if you think it's creepy to have an individual state monitoring the menstrual periods of women so that they can determine if one of them gets pregnant, so that they can determine if they have an abortion, so they can go after them and prosecute them. If the abortion's beyond the window of, I think, six weeks or whatever it is that's allowed in Missouri. Oh, you're having an abortion too late. You're going to go to jail. That's what this guy was doing in Missouri. If you think that's weird, wait until the police all across the United States are turned into stormtroopers. I mean, we've been seeing the slow evolution of this process ever since, I believe it was during the Reagan administration, they rolled out this program, the 1022, 1044, whatever it is. It's a numbered program where surplus military equipment is given to police departments. And suddenly, you know, starting in the 80s and the 90s, and now it's all over the country, police departments are getting half track. You know, we went from one country, one police department in the entire United States having a SWAT team to small towns of 30,000 people having SWAT teams. You know, they're, they're, they're getting all this body armor. I mean, they're getting equipped like it's stuff that was designed for Iraq and Afghanistan. It should not be on our streets. So here's what Donald Trump said in Chicago on Monday. In the coming weeks, Attorney General Barr will announce a new crackdown, which I think is so important in high crime cities and dangerous rural areas. Now, I deleted a few words there. It's, uh, actually, I'll read the whole thing. In coming weeks, Attorney General Barr will announce a new crackdown on violent crime, which I think is so important, targeting gangs and drug traffickers in high crime cities and dangerous rural areas. And then he said, let's call it the surge. He went on to say, it's going to be very dramatic. And Trump added, quote, you're going to see tremendous results very quickly. And then to expand on that, he says, to help keep you safe. And he's talking to the police chiefs, not the citizens of Chicago. So what do, what do police need to keep them safe? They need half-tracks and high-powered weapons and body armor and stuff like that. So he says, to help keep you safe, I've made $600 million worth of surplus military equipment available to local law enforcement. If you remember, the previous administration didn't want to do that. They didn't want to make you look so tough. They didn't want to make you look like you're a threat. Which, to a certain extent, is right. The Obama administration was trying to encourage police departments to return to community policing, where there's an actual cop on the corner and you get to know the cop on the corner and the cops are walking the beat rather than driving around in highly militarized vehicles and, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And Trump is changing all this. So my question, as, as the governor of Missouri, the Republican governor of Missouri, is tracking women's menstrual periods so that they can spot women who have become pregnant, so they can track how pregnant they are, how many months pregnant they are, if they get an abortion, and if they get an abortion beyond the legal limit that Missouri has passed, 
they can prosecute them. You've got that going on in Missouri, and now you've got this, you know, Trump telling the police chiefs of America, we're going to give you guys $600 million worth of military equipment. This is not law enforcement equipment. This is military equipment that you can turn on your people, on the people in the towns and cities and rural areas that you are policing. And he got huge applause for this. What the hell is happening to this country? There's so much going on right now, and, and I just think that so much of this is so symptomatic. I mean, the Trump bribing his jurors right now, right in front of all of us. Billionaires and big corporations owning the Republicans. The Washington Post breaking the story that Trump is putting together another tax cut. Obviously, it's not going to make it through the House of Representatives. And then if the economy crashes before, see, this is, this is like a, a failsafe for Donald Trump, given, particularly given the conversation I just had with Professor Wolf. If Trump proposes a tax cut and the Senate votes yes on it and the House votes no on it, and Trump is selling this to people, and, and Limbaugh and Hannity and Fox News and all these guys are selling this to the American people as, this will help the economy. Without this, the economy might be in trouble. And then the Democrats say, no, we're not going to vote for another damn tax cut. And the economy fails before the election. Trump's going to blame it on the Democrats in the House. You didn't get our tax cut through, our stimulus through, and therefore the economy sucks. He's setting it up. How do you think that's going to work out? I'm guessing, again, politically, at least for those on the right, it will work. We'll see. Julia, listening on KBCS in Auburn, Washington. Hey, Julia, what's on your mind today? I have a question in history. Because I'm thinking about Medicare for All, if it passes, it's going to be huge restructuring for the insurance industry. And in order to keep our planet alive, we're going to have to have renewable fuels, and that's going to be huge restructuring for the oil and fossil fuels industry. And has there ever been a time in history when our economy had to be fundamentally restructured? Yes, the biggest one was the era between 1929 and 1938. Yeah, FDR. Right. Yeah. Well, not just FDR. I mean, you know, it collapsed with Hoover. Hoover tried to tried to do a few things. He had uh, a reconstruction administration. He, he tried to roll out some, you know, small version of basically the New Deal. It didn't really work. But yeah, but yeah that, was, that was a complete reorganization. And actually, arguably, there was another one in 1920. Because when, in 1920, when Warren Harding successfully ran for president, the top tax rate was up to 91%. Corporations were paying a fair amount of taxes. And, you know, there was substantial regulation in place left over from the end of the charter mongering era, the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, the Tillman Act of 1907. Sherman Act, of course, prevented corporations from acting as cartels, as trusts, including in political ways. And the Tillman Act of 1907 made it a federal crime, two years in prison, for even a lawyer or an officer of a corporation that gave any money to any candidate for federal office. And so, I know. You know, and, and then Harding came that in, in place anymore. Right. That's correct. That was struck down by the Supreme Court in 76, 78 and 2010. But then Warren Harding came in in 1920 on a campaign of lowering taxes and deregulating industry. His, his campaign slogan was less government in business, more business in government or words to that effect, essentially, you know, which meant deregulate and, and lower taxes. And, you know, when Harding came into power, he did that. And that kicked off the Roaring Twenties, which was nine years of of what looked like prosperity, although the middle class and the working class actually saw their wages decline, much like right now. But people who were in the upper middle class and the very wealthy made off like bandits. And then it all crashed in 1929, which I think we're going to revisit in the next year or two. I think so, too. Yeah. I think so, too. But I don't hear any of the candidates talking about what is the plan for these huge multi-billion dollar industries? Oh, because the plan is pretty straightforward. Power willingly. No, you do it with incentives. You put a tax on carbon, for example, just a, even a modest tax on carbon would begin the process of completely re- restructuring our economy um, because our economy is so dependent on carbon. I mean, they did this with sulfur dioxide. 
In fact, it was George Herbert Walker Bush who did it. You know, the cap and trade program on sulfur dioxide to stop. Sulfur dioxide causes acid rain to stop acid rain. And it worked. You know, business jumped yeah. in and said, OK, you know, the, the taxes are pushing us in this direction. So we'll go in this direction. Makes perfect sense. Thank you. Well said on all points. Sam in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Sam, what's up on your mind? Hey, I just want you to give me some clarification. And I want to preface uh, my comments by saying I am a Democrat. I'm not a Trumper. But, but um, just want you to give me this clarification. Yes, I know that President Obama did believe a good basis for a growing economy. Mm-hmm. But I do give Trump credit for growing the economy even more on his watch because of deregulations. Okay, so, deregulations, so explain this to me, Sam. We're not good explain for this the environment. To me. Explain this to me. It used to be that if a coal mine was producing, and they all produce waste, you know, this, this got awful slurry and stuff, that they used to have to process right. it. And it was being processed in a facility that employed 30, 40 people and provided good jobs in the community. Same thing with putting scrubbers on smokestacks. Those were jobs. There were factories that manufactured the scrubbers. When they passed that law that said that the coal mining people in West Virginia, well, actually anywhere in the country, can now simply dump the slurry in the rivers, all those people who were working at the place Places that used to process that slurry lost their jobs. When they cut back on the smokestack emissions standards, all those people who used to work on cutting emissions lost their jobs. I realized that the profit went up for the coal companies and the profit went up for the oil refineries, but all of that profit just went into the pockets of the billionaires. How does deregulation create jobs? Can you explain that to me? Um, give me an example, a real me. world example of deregulation creating a job. Well, it's like one right now, but deregulation. I don't think you can think of any, Sam, because deregulation does not create jobs. The if you want to create a linkage between regulation or deregulation and jobs, and generally speaking, there's there's not that much of a linkage. But if you want to create a linkage, uh, the one linkage you can create is the one that I just gave you, which is that if you create a regulation that says that you know uh, food has to be has to be can't have arsenic in it, then the food processors have to hire somebody to test the arsenic. That's creating a job. If you create you know, if you, okay, if, if, okay. I mean, your know, regulation actually creates jobs, not deregulation, Sam, respectfully. Thanks for the call. PJ in Burnham, Illinois. Hey, PJ, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Michael Brown, the police came out with, oh, in Ferguson, Missouri, with yeah. tanks. With tanks. Yep. The same issue that you just brought up on in terms of turning over the uh, military weapons to cops. Yeah, when when police forces become militarized, you've got a country got in crisis. And PJ, thanks for the call. And and that's us right now. And if you look at every one of those strongman governments that I was telling you about, whether it's the Philippines or Hungary or Poland, I mean, pick one, right? Argentina right now, Chile, Brazil, every single one of those countries, they're hyper-militarizing their cops. Hi, it's the Tom Hartman Book Club with the Tom Hartman University, and today we're reading from Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. I'm reading from the preface. This is page XIII. The world right now is tottering atop three major thresholds, an environment that is so afire that it may soon no longer be able to support human life, an economic free market system that is almost entirely owned, run, and milked by a tiny fraction of 1% of us and has crashed and in many ways is burning around us, and an explosion of human flesh on the planet that has turned our species into a global petri dish just waiting for an effective agent to run amok. Four mistakes have brought us to this point, and the failure to recognize them at their deepest level will only push us faster toward total tipping points where we are thrown over the three thresholds and into disaster. All four of these mistakes are grounded in our culture, our way of thinking, our way of seeing the world, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we're here. The first mistake is a belief that we're separate from nature. Our religions tell us that we were created by a supernatural being who is not part of this earth and not from this planet. He set us apart from all other life and many among us, perhaps even the majority of the six billion of us, roughly seven billion now, don't even believe that we are animals, but instead think we're a totally unique life form. The second mistake is a belief that an abstraction an economic system is divine and separate from us. This mythical so-called free market, so we believe, operates under its own divine rules and is entirely and eternally self-regulating. 
it is always right. The fact that worldwide it's uh, more than 95% owned and run by fewer than 0.000001% of us, it's just the way things are, always were, and always will be. We are here to serve the economy, this belief goes. It's not here to serve us. The third mistake is a belief that men should run the world and that women are their property. While it may seem that women's rights are well advanced and society is nearly egalitarian in the developed world, the United States, Western Europe, and Australia combined are only about a quarter of the population of the world. In India, it's still a common rural practice for men to burn their wives to death simply because it's more convenient than divorce. In many Arab countries and across much of Africa and South America, it's not uncommon for women to be murdered by their families if they dishonor the family by not going along with an arranged marriage or not being a virgin at time of marriage. Even in the first world, women are routinely excluded from positions of power in the world's largest institutions, such as the Catholic Church. This is one of our biggest mistakes, not just because it's morally deficient or because it can be biologically challenged, but because its primary result is an explosion in population. The fourth mistake is a belief that the best way to influence people is through fear rather than through the power of love, compassion, or support. We stand baffled when Palestinians in Gaza vote for a political party that has a long history of terrorist activity, somehow completely overlooking the fact that that same group has been feeding people, building schools and hospitals, and providing old age and widow pensions to people in need. We think we can threaten and bomb people into liking us and behaving in ways consistent with our best interests while ignoring their own best interests. We have come to believe that we are not our brother's keeper, that we are separate from all other humanity on the planet, and in all that, we are mistaken. Civilizations have come and gone, and those long gone vanished mostly because they despoiled their commons, allowed small elites to control their economies and governments, and lived in ways that were unsustainable. Those who survive for centuries or millennia are the ones that learned how to protect their commons, engage in non-toxic commerce and governance, and organize their cultures and lifestyles in ways that could continue in the same place and the same way down through the ages. If we don't learn the lessons of the latter, we shall face the fate of the former. The book is Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. Tom Harbin here with you, Brent in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Brent, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I love the two Santa Claus thing that you've been doing for uh, several years. I love the articles. I think that it's a great insight, and I, I have a take on it. I think it's incredibly effective because I believe that most people, or at least a large enough percentage of people, have a very Epicurean philosophy. As in, as in somebody who likes good tastes, good flavor? Epicurus, the Greek philosopher who said that basically happiness is the avoidance of fear and pain. Oh, okay. Great. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Uh, no, the Epicurus, right, is that people mm. generally avoid fear and pain. Like, that's what sure. he believed happiness really was. Right. And the, the two Santa Claus theory works because once you have given something to someone, when you try to take it from them, they feel like that's pain. They're afraid to lose their money, right? You're going right. to raise their taxes, etc. And I just wonder what that does for Democrats in 2020, because the truth is our programs do require, if we're being honest, an increase in taxes, right. even though that would be a decrease in overall, like my premium is outrageous for my health insurance. I would gladly take the increase in taxes and, and lose the Right. Premium. Well, this is this but is why you how know, do you make someone understand that? Yeah, I mean, this is why the moderators of the of the debates have been so eager to get Elizabeth Warren to to admit that she's going to raise taxes to pay for Medicare for all. And I think you know you're absolutely right. And of course, raising taxes is. In fact, we played the clip a while ago of a Democratic presidential candidate saying, you know, uh, you know, it was Walter Mondale against Ronald Reagan in '84, and he said. You know, he's going to raise tax. I'm going to raise taxes, and so is he. I just told you, and he's going to lie to you. And uh, you know, it didn't work. He got he got creamed because Reagan said, "No, I'm not going to raise. No, I'm not. No way." And and so I think you're absolutely right, Brent. You know, the 
the, the whole Republican message of 2020 is going to be both fear on both ends. It's going to be the Democrats want to raise your taxes and they're going to use that tax money to put into place a government run health insurance program that won't work and that will strip you of the health care that you have. And it's going to be a total scare uh, thing. And, and it will only work if we don't educate the American people. And that's going to be a huge lift because, I mean, if you've got people in the Democratic presidential debates, if you've got the moderators buying into this Republican talking point, you know, how do you expect those, those same moderators, those same programs, those same networks to actually, I mean, lay it out for people? I, you know, I'd love to see a special on MSNBC and CNN that says, you know, here's how Medicare works in Canada. Here's how Medicare works. Can I ask in, in, a question? Yeah, go for it. Well, do you remember the Ross Perot Saturday morning paid uh, television thing? If you look at this here pie chart, you remember how he was doing that? I remember that very well. On Saturday mornings. Yep. What if we did that? I mean, we really need someone. And Liz Warren is the person. She's an educator by right. trade and her, her ability to deliver the message, regardless of who wins. I'm not saying that she should win. I, I support whoever the D's put up, right? right. But she is the person to do that Saturday well, morning here's the education way, program. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but we got 15 seconds. Here's the way I think that this is going to probably play out. She's putting together a plan to pay for her Medicare for All system. She's probably going to produce a very simple how-to video, like those Robert Reich videos. You know, here's how we're going to pay for it. Here's how it's going to work. Here, and and if, and if we can all help that thing get really, really wide distribution. I mean, Bernie should have done this a long time ago. Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, you know. And maybe there's something like that out there that I just don't know about. But it's something that needs to to be done, in my opinion. Brent, thanks a lot for the call. Stick around. Howard in Muncie, Indiana. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind today? A uh, quick statement. Before the 2016 elections, going back in history somewhat, the mantra about the liberals, the Democrats, Hollywood, all up to a T, said there is no way that Trump would be elected. Absolutely no way. Actually, but Michael I, Moore was saying that he was going to get elected. I was saying that I, I was worried that there was a good chance he'd get elected, particularly given the lies that he was telling. You know, he said he was going to make sure everybody had health insurance and it was cheaper than Obamacare and, and more comprehensive. It was a lie. He said he was going to break up the big banks. It was a lie. He said that he was going. And, he said that he was going to improve our school me, systems. It was a lie. He said he was going to support me, workers. It was a lie. He said he was going to bring back jobs. It was a lie. But you know, a lot of those things sounded really appealing, Howard, to people probably like you. Uh, let me finish, then I'll give it back to you. Probably within a week after the election, the media, mainly the radio stations, came up with the home of the resistance. The home of the resistance. Well, they all resisted and resisted and resisted. Finally, that went away. You have a clown out in California making statues of Trump with undersized parts. He went away. Then Mueller comes up, and Rachel Maydow and Lawrence O'Donnell are cheering, hip hip hooray, we got Trump now. We know what happened there. Well, now, yeah, Mueller, Mueller indicted 26 people. He got, he's got a bunch of people sitting in prison for their conspiracies with Trump. You got Michael Cohen, who's sitting in prison right now for a campaign finance violation that Trump ordered and signed the check for, but he can't be prosecuted. Mueller couldn't prosecute him because the Department of Justice said you can't prosecute a sitting president, so instead his lawyer's in jail. I mean, this guy is clearly a criminal, Howard. And, you know, if you want, you want to keep defending him, you know, go to Facebook, which won't take me, but I'm sure they'll take you, Howard. Eddie in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Hey, Eddie, what's up? Uh, how you doing? I, I watch your program a lot, and I just got a little question I'd like to ask. Once Trump is out of office, what will happen to his children that making money off the White House? Are they going to stay in, stay in there or what? Well, they're not going to stay in the White House, but, you know, what's going to happen, whether they get prosecuted for some of the grifts that they've been involved with, whether it was Ivanka and Don Jr. with you know, the Soho Hotel, I believe it was, you know, lying about occupancy rates in order to get investors, uh, you know, Ivanka and all of her patents in China. Uh, it's, it, there's, there are so many levels of corruption 
you know, in the Trump, Trump crime family. The question in my mind is, you know, does he get impeached for one simple thing or is he revealed? And I think, frankly, his tax returns will reveal this. Is he revealed to the entire world as a con man and a grifter and as fundamentally broke? I mean, Jared Kushner's over a billion dollars in debt, for example. How do you have any value at all if you're a billion dollars in debt? So anyhow, we'll see how it all shakes out. I mean, it's up to the Democrats right now. Frankly, it's up to how good a job that they can do of un, you know, turning over these rocks and revealing the, the crawly things underneath them that, that uh, are part of the, of the Trump crime family and its extended tentacles. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Share with your friends how you hear this show and other good progressive media and get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.